If you would turn to uh, 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23. I want to title this message, The Hand of God in Times of Distress. Well, let's pray first. And Father, I just thank you, Lord, for your presence to be here with us today. And I just ask that you open all of our hearts and help us to hear your voice through your word. And that we can speak to all the different needs that are here today in some way, Father. And that we can all just be encouraged and have hope to walk with you in these times to come, these difficult days ahead. And we can see your sovereignty and that you will be with us in many ways and speak to us and guide us and give us hope, give us comfort. And you'll sovereignly move events to preserve us, your people. And I just thank you that you'll show us that today in Jesus' name. So before we read 1 Samuel 23, just to kind of give the context of that chapter, you know, in 1 Samuel 16, Saul was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites and Agag, and he didn't do it. And when Samuel confronted him, he said, because you didn't obey the Lord, the Spirit of God is going to leave you. And it did. It went off of him, and he said, it is going to go on David, which it did. And the word says it came upon, it says it rushed upon David. And he was the anointed king at that point. I mean, God's spirit, his anointing to lead Israel was there on him. It had departed from Saul from there on out, even though he was technically still the king, but it really, the spirit of God had changed on who his anointing rested on. And 1 Samuel 17, after chapter 16, gives us a foretaste of what it was going to be like to have David as the king. He defeats Goliath while Saul is in his tent shaking in fear. And it's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's there. He'll deliver his people. And in 1 Samuel 18 and 19, we have Saul is trying in those chapters to kill David every way he can. He sends him to fight the Philistines, sets him up. He's going to kill him in bed. His wife helps him out there by making it look like he's in bed when he wasn't and warning him. He's throwing spears at him. It's all these different ways. Saul's trying to kill him. But every time God delivers David, his hand was on David. Then when you get into 1 Samuel 20 and 22... David and Jonathan, we talked about this several weeks back, they covenanted as friends, to be friends for life, and they were. And David, though, he has to flee to Nob. And when he's at Nob, he gets the priest to help him, and Saul finds out about it. And what does Saul do? He has Doag, because his men were afraid to touch the priest of God. But old Doag, the Edomite, he wasn't afraid, kills 85 priests. And Abiathar escapes and eventually teams up with David. But David then has to flee from there, and he goes to the cave Agilum. And that's where we pick it up here in 1 Samuel 23. So let's read. And it says, And then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines fight against Keilah, and they rob the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and smite these Philistines? And the Lord said unto David, Go and smite the Philistines and save Keilah. And David's men said unto him, Behold, we be afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we come to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? So they were in Judah, but they were going to be really close to Saul. And they knew Saul was wanting to do them in. That's why they're a little bit afraid there. And in verse 4, David says that he inquired of the Lord yet again. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into thine hand. And that's an emphatic I. God is saying, I myself will do it. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their cattle and smote them with a great slaughter. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. 
And it came to pass when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David to Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. And it was told Saul that David was come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he is shut in by entering into a town that has gates and bars. And Saul called all the people together to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. And David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring hither the ephod. And then said David, O Lord God of Israel, thy servant hath certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me up into his hand? Will Saul come down as thy servant hath heard? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. And then said David, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver thee up. And then David and his men, which were about six hundred, arose and departed out of Keilah and went whithersoever they could go. And it was told Saul that David was escaped from Keilah, and he forbore to go forth. And David abode in the wilderness in strongholds and remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. But God delivered him not into his hand. And David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a wood. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David into the wood and strengthened his hand in God. And he said unto him, Fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find thee, and thou shalt be king over Israel, and I shall be next unto thee. And that also Saul my father knows. And they too made a covenant before the Lord. And David abode in the wood, and Jonathan went to his house. And then came up the Ziphites to Saul to Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself with us in strongholds in the woods, in the hills of Hakilah, which is on the south side of Jeshimon? Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of thy soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. And Saul said, Blessed be ye of the Lord. For you have had compassion on me. Go, I pray you, prepare yet, and know and see his place where his haunt is, and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he deals very subtly. See, therefore, and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides himself. And come you again to me with the certainty, and I will go with you. And it shall come to pass, if he be in the land, that I will search him out throughout all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the plain on the south of Jeshimon. Saul also and his men went to seek him. And they told David, Wherefore he came down into a rock and abode in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on this side of the mountain, and David and his men on that side of the mountain. And David made haste to get away for fear of Saul. For Saul and his men compassed David and his men round about to take them. But there came a messenger unto Saul, saying, Haste thee, and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Wherefore Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore they called that place Selah Hamalikoth. And David went up from thence and dwelt in strongholds at Engedi. So... Like we said, David was basically anointed king in chapter 16, and in essence, we said Saul was dethroned. But even though he's anointed king in chapter 16, he has known nothing but danger, betrayal, turmoil, and persecution ever since. 
And why do you think that is? All those chapters in between up to this point, he's known nothing but trouble, even though he is the anointed king. There's a reason for that. So in a couple of months, we celebrate in this country what's called President's Day. They combine them both. It used to be separate birthdays back when I was younger. Washington got his day and Lincoln, now they got them both together. Let's take Lincoln. What made Lincoln a great president? So was he born great? Was he born into a great family? Actually, it was just the opposite of that. He was born into a poor family. His mom died when he was nine, and he had to give all his money that he ever earned to his dad until he was at the age of 21. And so we know, if you know your history, he didn't have any formal education. He was born in the furnace of affliction, and he suffered that in and through the end of the Civil War. So the thing is, a weaker man would not have been able to endure the pressure that was put upon him during the Civil War. But Lincoln, from the time he was a young man on, was used to standing alone, and he was used to receiving criticism. And I mean, he got criticized during the Civil War. And so there was a man named Edwin Stanton, and he was one of Lincoln's fiercest critics during his life. He denounced every one of his policies that he ever came up with. He called him a low, cunning clown. That's how he described Lincoln. He nicknamed him the original gorilla. That's what he called him. And he said this French explorer, Paul du Chalou, he says he didn't have to go to Africa. This guy would go around trying to find all these animals and he was after a gorilla. He said he didn't have to go to Africa to capture a gorilla. He can just go to Springfield, Illinois. That's what he said. That's what Edward Stanton. And Lincoln never responded to one of those insults that were given him by Stanton. You know what he did? He named him his war minister. The reason he did that is because he said, this guy is the most qualified man for the job, despite everything he said about me, right? And he treated him with every courtesy. And he stayed his war minister, and the years rolled on through the Civil War until the end, and one night, President Lincoln, Ford's theater, was shot in the head, carried to a bed in a room. And Stanton came in that room, he stood over that bed, and he looked down on Abraham Lincoln, looked on his rugged face, and in tears he said, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. So it was through things like that with Lincoln, he was tempered to be a leader. It was through experiences like that that he was able to lead this nation. And he was going to bring reconciliation to this nation, too, when it was all over, right? So you have to go through experiences. All of us do. That's how God tempers us, to be qualified. So it's known that presidents of this country, the best ones that have been the best presidents, typically have been former governors. Because they've had to govern a state, choose a staff, manage people, and make decisions. And that's been one problem. This is no criticism of our current president, but Democrats and Republicans like he had no business experience and for all intents and purposes, he had no legislation ruling experience. And that was a problem because you need that to be a ruler. No substitute for experience. And that's why when they give the qualifications for a pastor in 1 Timothy 3.6, Paul says, not a novice, not a new Christian, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Because here's the deal. Any of us that are over 40 or whatever, life's beatings tend to take the pride out of you. They can. They should, especially if you're a Christian. 
trials and situations and experiences and criticisms of people and just things you have to go through, there's no way you're going to learn all that from a book, are you? It's just things you have to experience in life. And it's also interesting that before Paul says that, not a novice lest being lifted up in pride, he says he has to rule his own house well. He's got to have some ruling experience. If nothing else, he has to have some in his house. Just like a president needs to have some ruling experience to be a good president. So think of the great leaders and the great saints of the Bible. Joseph, Moses, David, Jesus, and Paul. They all were tempered, weren't they? through the trials and afflictions that they had to go through. And David and Jesus were both anointed by the Holy Spirit. They were both God's kings. And where did that anointing lead both of them? Into the wilderness. So they didn't sit on their thrones immediately. And so Jesus had to go through his earthly life suffering humiliation and trials from the devil. We've been going through the book of Mark the Pharisees, the crowds, his own family. And finally, the total humiliation of the cross we're told about in Philippians. It says this, he took on the form of a servant and he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Wherefore, because of that, that life he lived on this earth, that humble life, going through all those experiences and suffering, it says, wherefore, because of that, God highly exalted him. That's like David. He didn't start off on the throne. He had to be tempered. That's, David is one of my favorite characters. Reading through 1 Samuel, it is just seeing how God dealt with him and how faithful he was and how he came through the trials and tribulations he went through. It's the greatest reading you can have. So everybody would like to take the throne immediately, but that is not God's way for any of us because we are called, we're going to be his kings and priests one day. That's what it says, Revelation 1.6, unto him that has made us that's me and you, kings and priests, unto God and his Father, to him be glory. But guess what? Just like David, just like Moses, just like Jesus, we have to experience tribulation and suffering to get the crown. If you will not bear the cross, the song goes, you cannot wear the crown. That's part of it. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we suffer or endure, we also shall reign with him. And so that's what the process all of God's people have to go through before exaltation. They have to have experiences and suffering. We must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Because it's through the trials and the suffering and the experiences and trusting God and holding on when it seems like we can't, that's what gives us experience. And so if you would, turn to Romans 5, and we'll see that. We know this, but we'll see it. But it's the things we want to avoid that are the best things for us. Well, we'll start in verse 1. And he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith, and we stand in grace. We have to have that grace wherein we stand, and we rejoice in the expectation or hope of the glory of God. And look in verse 3. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations or pressures also because we know something we can see something that tribulation works patience or endurance and endurance works what experience which is what these men have to have before they can take the throne it's all of us 
And that experience works an expectation. Why? Because you see God's faithfulness. And you're thinking, man, I've been through some tough times and he's come through for me. I can go through more tough times. And you have that expectation then that God is faithful. No matter how bad it is, like with David, he will deliver me. Seems like I'm sunk, but God will deliver you. And that expectation, it says, makes not ashamed because the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. I'll tell you, I was working on another sermon. I had a, a guy on an airplane that short-circuited everything. That's all I can tell you. So I got in a conversation, and I was, I was cruising right along with a message for today. So, But we will still deliver that message. But part of what I was wanting to say is we have got to be grounded in the love of God. Amen. We do. We've been hearing a lot about that, and we're going to hear more. But that is what will take you through all of what we're seeing. David was. He knew God loved him. And that is Paul's prayer. I'm going to preach part of it. I wasn't planning on it. But in Ephesians 3, he prays specifically for those people. He says, I've heard of your faith and your love. He wasn't saying they were doing bad, but he says you need to be grounded and rooted. You've got to have roots that go deep in that love. Because some people, they've experienced the love of God, but it's been a shallow experience. And they're easily uprooted. And that grounded is like a firm foundation. That is what we need to have. So we can know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth. And when you have that, you will stand in these last days. And I'm done with that. But that's what we need. Amen? Amen. We do. So we're saying experience is the only way. And I mean, I've seen this. A lot of people, they want to have ministry. They see somebody up preaching. They see a TV preacher or whatever. It's like, oh, that looks like fun. I'd like to do that. It's not. That's Brother Jerry, is it? It's, it's not what it seems to be, right? But listen, and I just see this too much, and people get some young drug addict that gets converted. They want to get him up in a pulpit right away and all. No, the best thing you can do is not become Mr. Popular, Mr. You've got the testimony to share and all that. The best thing you can do is get grounded in your Christianity. Go through your trials and keep your mouth shut. That's for all of us, right? Because, you know, it's like a Hamahaz and Cushai. We've talked about that before. Oh, the Hamahaz, buddy, he's, he's a great runner. He wants to run. But guess what? He's running, but he gets there, and he doesn't have a message. Because a message doesn't come by reading books. If that was the case, I'd have the greatest messages in the world. I got too many books. I was telling those guys before church, I have to have a fast on buying books, amongst other things. But look, it doesn't come through head knowledge. It doesn't come through reading the Bible through as many times as you can right away. It comes through what? Experience. Years of experience. So all of us, we need to be content where we are. If you're a housewife, if you're a student, if you're a construction worker, wherever you are, we got to be where we are, faithful where we are, and let God deal with us in the trials that come up where we are. He's got them tailor-made for you. And too much, we're looking down the road, oh, I could just have this ministry. If I could just do this and get, and believe me, where you're at now is where God wants you. That's where the preparation is taking place. Strive to live the Sermon on the Mount by God's grace. That's what we need to do. And you'll grow in wisdom. And when it's time, God will open doors. That doesn't mean you don't do anything, does it? We should still be sharing and witnessing and all those opportunities that present themselves. I'm not saying don't do anything. That's crazy. Just come here and sit and go home. No, no, no. But as God opens the doors, but don't always be wishing you could be doing something more or bigger or better, right? 
Let God take care of that because that's what David did, didn't he? He knew that he had the anointing to be king, but he had to be learning to wait, to wait on the Lord. We'll talk about that here in a minute. So he isn't out there in the wilderness. He's been anointed king by Samuel. He is not out there practicing his acceptance speech. That's the last thing on his mind. Or, or just how am I going to be humbly accepting the applause of the people? I mean, that's not what he's doing. God was doing a deep work in his heart. And he will exalt us in due time if we'll allow him to do that. Now listen to the Psalms. You think he wasn't doing a work in David's hearts. Hear, O Lord, he would pray, and have mercy upon me. Lord, be thou my helper. That's what David's praying out there. He's not worried about an acceptance speech. Psalm 30, that is. Or hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. That's Psalm 5. That's what's going on. And so when David gets in these distressing situations, and that's what you read about when you read all these accounts through 1 Samuel, what he sees is the faithful help of God. And so what do we say when somebody helps us out? We say they lent a helping hand, right? And it can be humbling for that to happen. And David was humbled many times having to cry out to God to help him. And I got a neighbor, he won't let us do anything for him even though he can barely walk. He always wants to pay us back. I'm like, you don't have to pay us back. We're glad to help you out. Sometimes we just need to have that helping hand of God and accept it in humility. God resists the proud and gives grace unto the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under that mighty helping hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him because he loves us. It says, for he cares for you. And that's how we can rest in that, can't we? We can rest in that. So when you're in distress, who do you look for help? David looked to God, and we're going to see that it worked. That's what this chapter is all about. So we're going to see three things, how God came and made his mighty hand known in this chapter. First thing we'll see, he did it through counsel. That's verses 1 through 13. So if you're taking notes and you like headings, the first heading will be his counsel. The second will be God does it through comfort. Verses 14 to 18, and he does it because he's in control. That's verses 19 to 29. So that's what's known as alliteration. They all begin with C. Counsel, comfort, and control. That'll be the three things we'll look at. Go back to 1 Samuel 23, if you would. And we'll see how God makes his mighty hand known through counsel in times of distress. So look here in verse 1, it says, Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines fight against Keilah, and they rob the threshing floors. And so David's got the heart of a king. This is his people in Keilah being afflicted. And so they're in distress because they're taking their food for the winter. It's not just they're stealing from them. These people may not have anything to eat that winter. It's life and death. And so who should be helping them out? Saul should be helping them out. That's why he was anointed king. In 1 Samuel 9, 16, Samuel says this to Saul, Tomorrow about this time I will send thee a man, speaking of Saul, out of the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be captain over my people Israel. And here was why Saul was anointed, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come unto me. And at first, Saul did a great job of that. He really did. He was faithful to the Lord, faithful to what his anointing was. 
First Samuel 14, 48, it says, He acted valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those that spoiled them. Now, he was doing a good job of delivering the people from the Philistines and the other oppressors. But here, what we have is he no longer has the Spirit of God on him. And he's no longer doing that. And David does. And David is the one here that's acting like a king. God's king and has a heart for the people in distress. Because what's Saul doing? Instead of fighting the Philistines, he's after David. It's crazy. Look in verse 8. I mean, it says, And Saul called all the people together to war, to go down to Keilah, to do what? Help fight the Philistines? To besiege David and his men. It doesn't make any sense at all what he's doing, does it? David had never done Saul wrong at all. In fact, actually all he did was help him. Right? But Saul is a type of the Antichrist, is what he is. He's relentless in the pursuit of God's people, and particularly David. So look in verse 14, it says this, And David abode in a wilderness in strongholds and remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And what does it say? Saul sought him every day, but God delivered him not into his hands. So Saul and the Antichrist, they knew they were doomed. They knew that their end had come, right? God has them what? He's got them both on a leash. You know, we won't have to turn there, but when you read Revelations 12, when he knows his days are coming, he's cast down to the earth. You all know Revelation 12. What does he do? It says he wages war with the saints. He is relentless. He's after them, after them. The great whore is after them. Martyrdom is going to be a big time thing in the great tribulation. Because he is out to destroy all of God's people that he can. All of this earth, as a matter of fact, anyone made in the image of God. But he is especially after the saints. And it's beginning now. It is. And we better be prepared. It's coming. So we better know the Lord. I'm saying I heard that verse. A guy said, you draw an eye to God and he'll draw an eye to you. And that's what we need to be doing. That is a promise. He'll either do that or he won't, and he will, and we need to be drawn nigh to God. God's sovereign. He controls all events, doesn't he? But does that mean we have no responsibility, does it? Because David wants to do the right thing here, and he doesn't want to presume that he knows what God wants him to do. Because here's the problem. If you read back, it doesn't say that David inquired of the Lord at Nob, where the priests were. He just went there. And they helped him out. And what happened as a result of that? That entire city was wiped out. So he's not going to make, he learned his lesson there. He's not making that mistake here. So Saul's not here. And David, though, he's wanting to help him, but he is not going to rush in. So Keilah is attacked. But what is David? He doesn't know what's going on here. Maybe God is chastening that town. And maybe he doesn't want David to get involved. Maybe God's going to send Saul to deliver them. David wouldn't have known that, would he, at that time? Maybe Keilah was going to deliver themselves like Gideon did through a small band of people. David didn't know. And so he seeks guidance, doesn't he? Seeks the Lord, and that's what we should do. Don't we have a responsibility to pray and seek his guidance? Because there's a lot of times we want to rush in there and do what we think is the right thing, but we don't know. And we can make mistakes that way. So here's this person here. You know, they don't have money to pay their rent. They don't have any food. 
Do you just rush in and give them food and money right away, necessarily? So you got 1 John 2, it says, Whoso has this world's goods and sees his brother have need and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him. How dwells the love of God in him? And I think typically for us, that would be your first reaction. You see somebody has a need and you have the ability to meet it. I would think you would step in and try to, that'd be your first reaction. But no, you, really you do need to pray. Because over against that, we have 2 Thessalonians 3.10. And Paul says, I command you. This isn't like he's saying this is an option. He says, if any does not work, neither should he eat. So he's saying, I'm commanding you. I don't care how you feel about this situation, even if it's your best friend. If they're not working and they're sitting around idly looking for handouts, he's saying, don't give them anything. And he also goes on to say, I command that and exhort that person that you work with your own hands and eat your own bread. Don't be looking for other people's bread. So what do you do? Hey, I think we need to pray about things. Because I've had times where you think somebody has a need, you want to jump in there and help it, and you realize, I really think I'd have been better off leaving this one alone right here. More than glad to help somebody out. So sometimes we've got to be sensitive. We've got to pray about things and not assume we know what to do. It can cause problems. Or should I rebuke this person that I see in sin? Or should I just stay quiet about it? Because it presents both sides in the Bible, doesn't it? It says you rebuke certain people and you're going to get in trouble. Because they ain't going to like it. It's just going to cause more trouble for you. But there's other times, you know, it says you should step in there and rebuke a person in love. Right? Believe me, a lot of times that's my tendency to jump in and do something. And you just learn. It's that old gray hair, no hair thing. You start learning. Sometimes you just back off and pray. You don't have to jump into everything like right away because you see something going on. Or should I marry this girl or not? And as we've said a bunch of times, you can have what you feel, what you think, and all that. But we got to go with what the Bible says and pray about it. It may be, well, she goes to church, she speaks in tongues, she believes in my hand, and it just may be, that's just not God's woman for you. He might have another one. Not that there's anything in that sense scripturally wrong, but we need to inquire of the Lord. That's what we see David doing here in this first part of chapter 23. And especially, like I said, on major decisions. So David inquires of the Lord two times. Isn't that funny? And the first time the Lord says, you go, you'll deliver that city. But guess what? His men don't like what God told him to do. They're thinking, are you sure about this, David? Because you're setting us up to get in trouble. And so it says, David inquired of the Lord a second time. Look, verse 4, it says, Then David inquired of the Lord yet again. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I, God said, I will deliver the Philistines. In other words, before, he's like, you go, David, and you'll deliver that city. But this time, so he's doing this. His men know that he's seeking the Lord. They're scared. They don't like this, following this guy. He does it in front of them. They know what's going on. And God speaks and said, I'm telling you, I will deliver you all. And that satisfies them, right? The second time, because here's the thing. It didn't make sense to these guys what David's wanting to do. Didn't make sense to David's men. And a lot of times we seek the Lord and something just, we think it's God and it doesn't make sense to us. And sometimes you go back and are you sure, Lord? Nothing wrong with that. God doesn't get on us about that. But here's the principle. It says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding and all of thy ways. Acknowledge him 
and he'll direct your path. And it may not be what your understanding would take you to do. So he's demonstrating to his men, this is how you make decisions. Teach them this is how a godly man makes decisions and proceeds. Because you can't just go by circumstances, can you? People all the time will say, well, this door seemed open. Oh, I had to be the Lord. Or this door seemed closed. So I guess the Lord closed it. You can't go by just that. That is not good. Now, it can be God's closed the door or opened the door. But that is not the only thing you go by, right? A lot of people in here have read Bevington. And Bevington, talk about in seeking the Lord, he said the Lord showed him go preach at this church. Well, he gets to that church, and what is happening? You talk about a door closed. It was literally closed and locked. And it's like everybody that's come into this town has no success in preaching. Now, if he'd have just gone by that, Bevington would have just gone on to another town, wouldn't he? But instead, what did he do? He sought the Lord, got on his face, prayed, and fasted. For days. And what has happened at the end? God shows him a vision. And he sees this closed door opening, and that door makes a little mark in the dirt. That's his answer, and he holds on to that. And guess what? That vision literally came to pass. But if he'd have just gone by what was happening in the natural, he would have missed God's will. So sometimes a closed door is not a closed door. And sometimes an open door, you better not walk through it. The devil opened that for you. And God's testing you. Got to gauge everything by the word, right? Has to be sought. So turn to Psalm 27, if you would, please. Psalm 27. And this is what David learned out in the wilderness, Psalm 27. Beginning in verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, come upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. And though a host should encamp against me like Saul, my heart shall not fear. And though war should rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after. So he's seeking God's face despite his enemies coming on him, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. And now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore I will offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Has God been speaking to you about that, to seek his face? And that's when we should respond whenever that is. And that can happen at any time in the day. Thy face, O Lord, will I seek. That was David's heart. Hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger, for thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. For when my mother and my father forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Because he had to take his mother and father clear over out of Israel to safety. He doesn't have his family anymore. He's a young man. But he's got the Lord. He says, teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies, for a false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. I had fainted 
unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And verse 14 is where it's at. Wait on the Lord. Wait on him. Seek his face. Wait for him to show you what to do. And he will. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen thine heart. We sing that song. And he goes on and finishes that out. Wait, I say, on the Lord. You've got to do that. You know, I had to make a major decision not that long ago, and it seemed to me at first obvious what I should do. It just seemed obvious what I should do. But <laughs> after fasting and praying and waiting on God, the obvious was not obvious. And God's telling me to do the opposite of obvious. And it can be confusing at times because your head's telling you one thing and your heart and God are telling you something else. And you've got to lean on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 then, don't you? Because it's like, Lord, this, this doesn't make sense. It seems like trouble. But when it's God, it works out, doesn't it? And that's the way it worked for David, right? Our natural minds, we can't figure things out like we think we can. So listen, David goes in there and has this victory. Wouldn't you assume if you were David, God told him, go take that city, that God is on your side? I would. I would have thought, man, God's on my side. Everything's good. And that's the way Saul operates. So that's the way the, the world operates. When circumstances are going that way or a door seems open, they think, well, God's on my side. That's what Saul did. Look in verse 7. Back in 1 Samuel 23, you got to get out of the Psalms. Look in 1 Samuel 23, 7, it said it was told Saul that David was come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand. Saul is like rejoicing. This is great. Well, he's not seeking God. He thinks God's blessing him. He said, for he is shut in by entering into a town that has no gates and bars. And that's the way he proceeds. Doesn't pray about it, doesn't do anything. And look at verse 8. And Saul, he calls all the people together to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. In verse 14, David abode in the wilderness in strongholds and remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day. He thinks God's given him the green light, but God delivered him not into his hand. And look over in verses 19 and 20. And then came up the Ziphites to Saul to Gibeah, saying, Does not David hide himself with us in strongholds in the wood in the hill of Hekilah, which is on the south side of Jeshimon? Now, therefore, king, come down according to the desire of thy soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. And Saul said, Blessed be ye of the Lord. You've had compassion on me. He's looking at all of these events like God is blessing him. Not once does he pray about it, does he? And that's the way of the world. That shouldn't be our way. We should be seeking the Lord. Because David didn't do that. He sought to see what was going on. So look, he's taken this town. God's given him this town. But he sees Saul coming, and he doesn't take it for granted that God's just going to continue to deliver him, does he? Because look in verse 9. When it says, when David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring hither the ephod. He's like, trouble's coming. I'm not assuming everything's okay. I still need direction from the Lord. Even though he'd gotten direction. I need more direction here. Things are changing. And so he seeks. They bring down that ephod. How that works, I don't know. But it would give him a yes-no answer. And so verse 11, David asked, Will the men of Keilah deliver me up into his hand? Will Saul come down as thy servant is heard? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. And the Lord said, it's actually one word in Hebrew, he will. 
They, they added the rest so it would make sense. But he's asking, is he going to come? And God says, he will. That's his short, direct answer. And then said David, verse 12, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, again, one word, they will. <laughs> I mean, God has answered. And you better get out of there, is what he's telling him, right? So a lot of people are hard on the people of Keilah. So they never did it. They never had a chance to. But God, being omniscient, knew what would happen if he stayed there, right? And people are hard on them. Like, man, after David did all that for them, why would they just deliver him up? You've got to take everything back in the context. They saw what happened to the town of Nob after those people helped David, that priest. What happened to Nob? Saul wiped every single one of them out. They know David's not going to hang around that town forever, Keilah. He's going to be leaving, and they're afraid Saul's going to just wipe us out. So you got to be a little easy on them. I mean, we do have Peter denied the Lord after all he had done for him, right? So we can't be too hard on those people. David gained a reputation because people would have known all throughout Israel, and especially Judah in that area, that David came to Keilah, rescued that town from the Philistine, and that would have given him grace in the eyes of the people. And that all happened because he sought the Lord. The point of this whole first point is we have got to seek the Lord before we make decisions about things, before we do things. I've given this before. I want to give it again briefly. George Mueller in his biography and other books written about him, they'll have it in here, his five conditions of seeking God's will, of prevailing prayer. And the first one is you have to have entire dependence on the merits of Christ's atonement and mediation. You're dependent on his blood and the fact that he is going before you to the Lord in the throne. The second condition was you have to be separate from all known sin. You can't be living in sin. And I'm just telling you, I've seen it happen too many times. People are living in sin, and they have no direction on where God wants them to do, what he wants them to do, what they should be doing. They make bad decisions. You can't have sin in your life and expect God to give you direction. Psalm 66, if I regard iniquity in my heart, it says the Lord will not hear me. He won't hear your prayer. And the other thing we need to know is we can trust his word. We're applying the principles of the word to our life, whether it's trusting him for healing, anything. We can trust that. He's confirmed it by an oath. That's the third thing. The fourth thing Mueller said is we have to ask in accordance with God's will. And he said the hardest thing to do is to get your will out of the way. He said that's 90% of the problem. You get your will out of the way, and it's a short path to finding God's will. Get your will out of the way, not leaving the results to just feelings or impressions. You may have an impression or a feeling, but you, he's saying don't go by that alone. That's dangerous. And he says you want to seek God's will using the Word and the Holy Spirit combined. So people that are led by the Spirit are led by all kinds of spirits, if that's all they... And people that are just the Word, you can be so rigid, you, you can't discern what God wants you to do. So it's got to be both, the Word and the Spirit. Then, fourthly, he says, then you do look at circumstances. They can be giving you direction. So you don't totally ignore open and closed doors. It's just you don't just totally go by them. Amen? Does that make sense? 
The last point he had, he says, through prayer, study, and meditation, you've done all that. Got sin out of your life. Through prayer, studying the Word, meditating, taking your time, getting before the Lord. He says, come to a decision if you have peace after several times of praying. You have that peace that passes understanding. Do we all know what we're talking about when we say that? Amen. If you don't, that's what you need to start learning to press in. You got decisions to make. You need to learn how to pray and how to discern that you have that peace from God. And it may be trial and error, but you've got to start stepping out and doing that to seek the Lord's will, especially young people. What you should do with your lives, your future, who you should marry, all of that. Have that peace in your heart that comes from knowing the word. And the last thing he said was importunity, persistent waiting on God in prayer. And that's what we need to learn is first point for David. The next two aren't nearly as long. But if we wait on the Lord and be of God's courage, he will answer and help us just like he did with David. And so the second principle we see here in verses 14 to 18 is he will make his will known, his mighty hand known through comfort. So David has just been betrayed by the people of Keliah, even though they owed him their lives and all that. That would be distressing to him. I would think he just helps somebody out and here they turn on you. And it says in verse 14, Saul's seeking him every day at the end of verse 14. So what does God do? David needs some comfort. He needs some encouragement. And he sends his buddy Jonathan. Sends his buddy Jonathan to encourage David. And look at verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the wood and strengthened his hand in God. He says, hey. My father's not going to do anything to you. He knows that, and you know that. Fear not, David. You're going to be on that throne, and I'll be right next to you. And so God does that. That's the way he operates. When things get black and things are bleak, he will not just leave you that way. He won't let you sink, as we were talking one day, in the sloth of despond. If you read Pilgrim's Progress, he is not going to let you get overwhelmed in the sloth of despond. He'll come. He'll come and bring somebody to lift you up. That's the way he does it. And if you would, just turn to one place quickly, Acts 27, and we'll see that. Because God loves us, he cares about us, and he wants us to be encouraged. And this is a familiar story, but we'll read it again. Paul, when he's out at sea. So Acts 27, beginning in verse 13. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had all obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Heraclidon. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. And running under a certain island, which is called Clada, we had much work to come by the boat, which when they had taken up, they used helps undergirding the ship and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands, strake sail, and so were driven. And we being exceedingly tossed with the tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. And the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us. Luke is writing this. All hope that we should be saved was taken away. They were in a hopeless situation. Verse 21, but after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not have loosed from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you but of the ship. Because here's what God did for Paul. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am 
in whom I serve, saying the same thing Jonathan said to David, Fear not, Paul. Thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God has given thee all them that will sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. Because we serve a God of all comfort. And in 2 Timothy 4, when Paul said, all men forsook me, what did he say? Once again, he said, God stood by my side. And it may seem like you're the only one believing what you're holding on to. And it can look dark. But when you're his, you'll hear that voice one way or another. He'll send somebody, he'll send an angel if he has to, that tells you, fear not, just hold on. Help is coming. He's the God of all comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, one of my favorite scriptures. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us when? In all our tribulations. Those experiences we're having that we hate, but God is there to comfort us through them. Why? That we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted by God. I mean, I lost a baby one time. I could not have been in greater distress. And yet, supernatural comfort came to me. I mean, I experienced, I'm like, I don't understand this. Because I went one minute, I mean, I'm as upset as I've been in my entire life. And God met me several times during that. To let me know he was there. He's teaching me a hard lesson. I mean, I got a bad spanking through that. But just like with your kid, you give him a bad spanking, do you just, you know, throw him over in the corner? Don't you hold your kid and speak to him nicely? You let him know, hey, you got to straighten up, but you got to speak to him nicely, do. And that's what God, our Father, does. And so he'll send a word of encouragement. When I was going to seminary, I was in the college, actually, I'm working full-time, I'm going to school full-time, I got a family, I'm trying to balance all this out. I wasn't getting a lot of sleep. I'm driving to school and I'm going through one of these crisis things like, is this God, what I'm doing here? Is this just me doing this? And I'm crying out to him as I'm driving to school. Lord, I mean, I'll drop all of this. I don't care. I don't care about doing what I'm doing. If your hand's not in it, and I mean, I was upset. I get into this class I had. This teacher is teaching. He stops what he's teaching on. He says, I don't know why I'm saying this. I just want to let you all know, if God has sent you here, he wants you to be here. And he goes on and on and on by that. I'm like, wow. <laughs> That's literally what happened. Then he goes, all right, well, I'm done with that and all that. And I mean, I'm like, I can't believe that happened. I go up to him and I'm like, man, you don't know. The Lord just spoke to me through you. And he's like, oh, really? I'm like, well, I don't care. You don't care. I care. <laughs> God used you, and that encouraged me greatly. And that's how he works. He'll send a word of encouragement. You know, recently, uh, I know somebody's in a major physical trial, and people called from different places and said specifically, how can we pray for this? Specifically, they were told, and they did, and I mean the trial ended. And you talk about encouragement. That, for me, is great encouragement. Number one, that people care that much, that God put them on their heart. They prayed specifically, and God caused all that to happen, and deliverance came. <laughs> That's the way God works. So let's go back to 1 Samuel 23. And the third point is God will make his hand known and that he is in control. So David was betrayed by the people of 
Keilah, and it happens again here with the people of Ziph. They turn on him and turn him into Saul. And Saul, here's where David is. He says, just let me know, people. Boy, I'll make it worth your while. And he finds out. And so here they are. They're, they're going around the mountain, and she comes. Because David's on one side, and Saul's on another, and they're chasing around, and David's trying to get away from him. And Saul finally gets him compassed about. He's ready to wipe him out. He's got David outnumbered five to one. David's in trouble. All hope is lost. It looks like it's over. Look in verse 26. And Saul went on this side of the mountain, and David and his men on that side of the mountain, and David made haste to get away, and he's afraid for fear of Saul, for Saul and his men compassed David and his men round about to take them. And you put a period there, and it's curtains for David, right? But there is verse 27, and here's where God's sovereign hand comes in. Verse 27, there came a messenger unto Saul, saying, Hasty and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Well, that had to be God. Saul could have cared less about the Philistines coming in the land. All he cares this time, though. Some people surmise that it's because he was near Saul's house and going to get Saul's crops and all of Saul's things. And so now he's all the same. It doesn't matter. God's hand is in this nonetheless. Right as he's ready to get David, he gets news. And guess what? He takes off and leaves David alone. And God sovereignly delivers him again. So he doesn't always have to perform a miracle, does he? You know, you read in the Bible, doesn't have to send an angel, doesn't have to perform a miracle. He can use people, animals, insects, storms, everyday events to cause his will to happen. Here it's just a messenger saying the Philistines are coming. It's all like, well, I'm taking off then. And David escaped. That's how he can work, right? What about in Acts 9? Saul, Paul, had to escape how from that town? Lowered down in a basket. And how did that happen? He heard a rumor. His sister's son came. And what if he'd have said, man, I had a bright light that knocked me off my horse, and Jesus said I would perform and preach this gospel to the ends of the earth. I'm not getting in your basket. I'm not getting lowered, lowered down on that wall like a loaf of bread. What if he'd have done that? We'd have had a shorter version of Acts, right? He didn't do that. And God just worked through everyday circumstances because he's sovereign. You know, it's like the old story. You're, the guy's drowning, wanting help, you know, and here comes a log and he refuses to grab hold of it because that's just too normal. You better grab hold of that log if it comes by your way, right? Or Jesus. And we talked about this. They're going to throw him down the brow of that hill in Luke 4. And God, just whatever he did, we don't know. But he just walked right through their midst because it wasn't his time because God is sovereignly in control. Here's what we can see through all of this. All of these chapters, this chapter 23, we need to seek him and he'll take care of us if we do that. He'll sovereignly send comfort to us. And there are dangers. Listen, we hear about things all the time. There are dangers that are coming our way every day that we don't know about. God does. And so we need to put our trust in him that he's going to help us out. I mean, Saul's after David. He's like a bloodhound after an escaped prisoner from the chain gang. He's not leaving him alone. David doesn't always know where he's at and what's going on. He has to trust God. And God is sovereignly watching out for him, isn't he? Because David's got his... Heart right with God. And so we have an enemy that is just as relentless as Saul was, called the devil. Don't we know that? He's pursuing us, trying to trap us. 
And so we need to pray and look for God's sovereign hand of mercy to deliver us. And I'm saying every day, because when we wake up, we don't know that day what's potentially coming our way, do we? You might be surrounded by trouble and you wouldn't know it or I wouldn't know it. I've been harping on this a lot, I guess, because it's been harping on me a lot. But we need to pray that prayer. Lead me not into temptation, unnecessary trials, but deliver me from the evil one. And I'm telling you, here's my testimony, my great vacation testimony. So we got the big day. We're all going to the beach. Everybody's packed in the car. That's going to be the hottest day of the time. We're at 88 degrees heading to the beach, get in the car. We didn't get to the store to get ice in our cooler. Flat tire. Screw got up in the tire. I never had that happen on a rental car. Brand new 200-mile tire. Got a screw in it. So what do we do? Out in the heat. We're not at the beach. We're sweating. Two hours fixing this flat tire. Right? Finally get that taken care of. Then we get in a major traffic jam. And I kid you not, it was the one day of my vacation I did not pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Now you could say, oh, that trial could have happened to anybody. Well, I'll tell you what, I prayed the next day. We had a great day, didn't we, Greg? Well, here's my wife. She doesn't know what happened. And, she, and we're in there and all this is going on. She goes, honey, can we pray that God will bless our day? <laughs> yeah, I should have done that, dear. So anyways... We need to be on guard and pray even when we're on vacation, don't we? Because the devil doesn't take one. He doesn't believe in vacations. <laughs> Leave it to the devil not to believe in vacations. And he doesn't. He's after us no matter what. And that's why I don't like vacations, because I get out of my routine. I like my routine where I'm at my office down there by myself. It's easy to pray and read. And on vacation, it's one big hotel room. But praise the Lord. So that's what we see, though. God will do what he has to do, won't he? But we need to be praying and trusting him that he's taking care of those hidden dangers that are coming our way. That's what he did. He took care of David. But we can rejoice that if we got our heart right, God will do all of what we see in this chapter for us, won't he? He will. So what can we expect from God? The first thing we talked about, hey, we can expect his counsel. He'll give us counsel in the decisions we have to make. And we need to seek him, though, whether they're big or small decisions. And he'll give us comfort. The intensity of the pressure, the intensity of the trial, he will send us comfort. He will. That's what God will do. And like I said, lastly, we just got to give our circumstances to him and he will be faithful. Amen. Faith is like Daniel in the lion's den. So our days are numbered in this world. And so we need to not despise the wilderness we're in. David didn't. So we just need to seek God's face and know his presence is with us and let those experiences do that work in us so that we can be prepared for what's coming down the road because something big is coming down the road. That's not just preacher talk, I'm telling you. It's coming. All this prosperity that may seem, it's fool's gold, believe me. Amen? God's faithful, he'll guide us. Amen, let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for all the examples that you've given us in the Old Testament through the life of David, that we can see your faithfulness to him in a story that we can learn from, a story that we can all relate to in its many forms. And I just ask, Lord, that you'll speak to all of us here, and I pray that this word will help people here as they go through these weeks and months ahead with decisions they have to make in seeking you, and to know that your hand will be there with them to guide them, to comfort them, 
and we can see your sovereign hand in protecting us and delivering us. We thank you, Lord, for being a faithful God and a loving Father, and I ask you'll continue to impress that on all of our hearts and cause all of us to deal with the sin in our lives that would keep us from experiencing your presence. Thank you that you'll do that for us, and we pray that now in Jesus' name.